0: In today's episode, I sit down with Vincent Lee, Senior Legal Counsel of Tech Equity at the Greenlining Institute, an organization that works toward a future where communities of color can build wealth, live in healthy places filled with economic opportunity, and are ready to meet the challenges posed by climate change. Vincent Lee leads the Greenlining Institute's work to close the digital divide, to protect consumer privacy, to ensure algorithms are fair, and to ensure that technology builds economic opportunity for communities of color. In this role, Vincent helps develop and implement policies to increase broadband affordability and digital inclusion, as well as to bring transparency and accountability to automated decision systems. Vincent also serves on several regulatory boards, including the California Privacy Protection Agency. Vincent holds a Juris Doctorate from the University of California, Irvine School of Law, and a Bachelor of the Arts in Political Science from the University of California, San Diego. Prior to his work at the Greenlining Institute, Vincent advocated for clients as a law clerk at the Public Defender's Office, the Office of Medicare Hearing and Appeals, and the Small Business Administration. Hi, Vincent. Hi, Deb. So Vincent, in preparing for this interview, I spent some time reading about the Greenlining Institute, where you serve, if I remember correctly, as Tech Equity Counsel. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Greenlining Institute is and what led you to want to work there? I know that you're based in Oakland, California. That's where I'm based as well, and I'm curious about what you were seeing or what was coming up for you in the world that you were seeing when you made the decision to join the Greenlining Institute.
1: Thanks, Deb. Um, I think at a high level, I'll explain what the Greenlining Institute is. Um, you know, it is a nonprofit research and advocacy organization. You know, we focus on building wealth. In communities of color, and in particularly communities that live with the impact of historical redlining, which is you know the systematic discrimination against particular communities of color by banks, insurance companies, the government, realtors, and we want to close the racial wealth gap for these communities, but also we want to make sure that communities of color live in places that are healthy and that are ready to meet the challenges posed by climate change. So, big scope of work. I work on particularly the tech equity issues, and I always had an interest in tech, and I think being in Oakland allows me to be closer to, you know, Silicon Valley and San Francisco, where a lot of these systems are being designed. But a little bit about why I wanted to work at Greenlining beyond the tech focus was, um, throughout law school, I worked as a in criminal justice as a public defender, and you know, as I saw more and more clients, I think it became harder to ignore the systemic issues that, you know, create a cycle of poverty and disinvestment um, that lead people back into the criminal justice system. So working at Greenlining on these systemic issues, on policy issues, uh, allowed me to tackle things on a, more, uh, on a broader level, right, versus the individual level. Um, something I do miss quite a bit, but I think the opportunity to create policy and to, you know, try to build wealth and try to break this cycle of poverty really appealed to me.
0: You mentioned a couple of things that I wanted to pick up on and try and uh, square here. Uh, you mentioned that you were interested in working on the way that climate change was affecting communities of color. You mentioned that you were interested in uh, looking at a- and trying to ameliorate some of the long afterlife of redlining. I'm curious how tech equity fits into your and the Greenlining Institute's vision for a more just future for communities of color. I think that I can see the connections between climate change and redlining and our current ecosystem of technological production, but I'm wondering if you can help put a finer point on it. What do you see as the major issues at the intersection of tech and equity for communities of color? How do all of these things fit together?
1: Yeah, so, you know, the, the tech equity work at Greenlining is centered around, you know, building wealth in formerly redlined communities. And, you know, the work in particular covers two things, right? It's the digital divide and then algorithmic equity. So the digital divide connects to our vision because we saw that, you know, uh, access to the internet, computers, digital literacy skills is much lower among um, communities of color. Um, and in particular, Black and Latino communities. And we saw this as a critical issue because access to these digital skills and these devices is a pathway to good jobs, to home ownership, to all of the things that, you know, white communities have had access to and communities of color have been left out of. And then the other side of this is algorithmic equity. And this is actually a program that uh, I started at Greenlining after reading Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. I had always thought, that algorithms and automated decision systems were our way out of redlining, right? We could take the human out of the equation. We can build decisions that were, you know, uh, objectively fair. And I read this book and I was like, oh no, these systems are actually just learning from patterns of human discrimination and replicating those decisions at a much bigger scale and with less oversight in many cases. So, you know, I think the worry here that GreenLining is trying to tackle is making sure that these systems that control access to housing, healthcare, credit, insurance, education, you name it, um, they're not learning from data that is uh, biased, data that is infected by the legacy of redlining, and it doesn't replicate those harms that happened in the past.
0: So I'm glad you mentioned Cathy O'Neill's excellent book, Weapons of Math Destruction. I want to come back to that in a bit. but I want to probe a little bit deeper into your claims about algorithmic bias. On this show, we have talked a lot about algorithmic bias and the way that data is frequently used in a- algorithmic computation um, in ways that can automate and ossify and amplify existing biases. I think that, though, what you are trying to do is not just understand these things, which at this point I think are, are fairly well documented and understood, but to actually try to push policy forward in order to mitigate some of the harms that are caused by these processes, which again, I think at this point we, we understand uh, fairly well. That is to say, we understand that the harms exist and we understand why the harms exist. But what kinds of policies are we talking about? What kinds of policies would you want to see codified into law or to regulation?
1: Yeah, there's a whole lot of things that I want, and a lot of the things I want are tempered by, you know, political realities. I do a lot of legislative work, both in California and federally, but the the type of policies that I advocate for now at this stage of the game, as I call it, is really around transparency and accountability. So GreenLining um, sponsored a bill called AB13 two years ago, and that would require businesses to do risk assessments, right? Find out what are the risks of your systems in terms of making inaccurate bias or discriminatory decisions in, you know, what we call like high risk sectors or critical sectors, right? Ones like healthcare, like credit, uh, like housing and education and yeah, submit a report. So the idea was we want companies to actually look at the harms of their systems and explain the ways that they are mitigating those harms. And, you know, that bill came up against a lot of industry opposition. Um, I don't think even just two years ago, California was ready for a lot of these policies. They were like, this is going to kill businesses. This is impossible. And you know, here we are several years later, and I think the climate is much better. This year, we're running a bill called AB302. This is focused on at least creating an inventory of all of the government automated decision systems that are making you know, decisions about who gets access to social services, to Medi-Cal, Medicaid. You know, if, you're, if your ID is being scanned, your face is being scanned to determine if you get access to unemployment benefits. So we want an inventory of all of these systems, where they're being used, if they've been tested for bias, uh, what are they supposed to do, what they can be used for. So these kind of things. And that's a way to get at least our legislators and, you know, the public more awareness of, you know what are the issues and systems that we need to care about so i think those are the the general systems right testing for bias and making sure we know where these systems are being used and deployed
0: i want to ask a kind of sticky question that i think gets at some of the challenges of building some of the concepts that you're talking about such as equity into actual policy and enacting them in ways that uh, companies uh, can also uh, be made accountable for and that are actionable and this is a question that i think that gets into some of the friction between technologists and critics of technological production, often by those of us who are not technologists. When we humanistic thinkers and maybe lingual thinkers talk about uh, terms like equity, we're talking about values, we're talking about concepts. And the thing about concepts is that concepts have a shape but not a definite shape. This is something that I talk about when I talk to my undergraduate students uh, about ethics. We don't define in ethical, conceptual terms, terms like equity completely. When I talk about humanistic values, I talk about them having a shape, but they are what I call open concepts. Their conceptual shape is indefinite and we actually allow that shape to morph situationally. So here's an example of what I mean let's say that I have a pie and I want to share that pie equally with my colleague. The question emerges, if we're concerned about equity, uh, how should we split that pie equally? On the one hand, um, an answer just might be 50-50, right? We each get half. That's, that's what we would call equal. That's a standard construction of equality. But what happens when my colleague is a 6'2", 250 pound football player who just comes out of practice what happens then? This is an audio, an audio medium, so people can't see me, but you can see me. I, I'm about 5'1". Uh, I sit at my computer most of the day. Is giving my 6'2", 250-pound football playing colleague half and keeping half still equal? Is it equitable? Here, in a sense, 50-50 is not equal. And then the situation becomes more complex when we add more variables. So let's say that in addition to being 6'2 and 250 pounds and a football player, my colleague doesn't get very much work done, and I end up having to do all the work to complete a collaborative project. In this scenario, say that the pie is a reward for work. Should I now get more pie than he, even though he is a 6'2 football player, because I have done more work? That would violate a principle, and I'll just throw in a pun here because I like puns of just desserts, right? We're talking about pie, um, even if it fulfills the principle of each according to his needs. I give this example because in each of these sets of circumstances, the numerical value, how much pie, gets to transform in order to meet the larger question of which values matter in each specific scenario. And in the humanities, we allow that kind of transformation. That's what we would call equity. The problem is that technologists don't have this kind of uh, luxury of having an open concept. Technological products have to encode values as numerical values. You can't build a piece of hardware or software with an infinite contextually dependent shape-shifting set of properties. In technological production, values have to be transcribed into material forms, numerical variables, and mathematical formulas. So you can have some variational bandwidth, but not the kind of infinite variations that humanistic thinking allows. The same thing with policy, right? You actually have to set certain um, standards and define those terms and give the people who have to follow those procedures a set of metrics by which to evaluate it. And so, of course, also when you're building a piece of uh, hardware or a system, sometimes maximizing equity for one group means compromising equity for another group. So we should acknowledge, I think, that even the best and most thoughtful technologists and their products can't really ever live up to the kinds of ideals that humanistic inquiry and maybe even a kind of idealistic legal philosophy might propose. I can see, given the setup of an open concept versus an actual product, why some technologists get frustrated with the kind of critiques that I launch toward them. Um, I'm wondering how you would address this kind of point of view and how that might inform some of the legal thinking that you are positing as well
1: yeah i, I think this is uh, i mean a great explanation of you know kind of a lot of the friction between um the civil society groups consumer groups that i work with and industry groups who say no this is impossible we can't satisfy all of you with an idea of fairness or equity that will work in all situations in all contexts and you know i think over time i've i've In talking to a lot of folks that are well-meaning, I come around. It is it is difficult. You have to create a set of variables that you what we call optimize for in an algorithm. And so I think it is a fair point of view. And I've shifted away from trying to define fairness or equity as any one fixed definition per uh, yeah that works across different contexts and situations. Right? It's it's kind of impossible to come up with a fairness or equity constraint in any system that does satisfy what society thinks uh, works for any one group all the time. But I think in as it applies to the legal, my legal approach and um, my philosophical approach to this is at least companies should define how they've approached that question, right? If they've approached that question of equity, you know, what have you done in order to come up with the set of criteria that you think is fair and equitable? Right. Have you done any testing? Have you, or are you just optimizing for profit Uh, and that's your idea of the most fair decision is the most profitable one, then you should own up to that, right? You should say that uh, to a regulator in your risk assessment is that, you know, we've made a system here It makes decisions on who gets access to, you know, loans and what we're doing is we're making sure that we get the most profit. And we think that is the most fair one, fair way to do things. I don't think companies will do that if they're forced to be transparent they can say you know uh, we we balance profit consideration with like fairness and what we charge in terms of rates and i think another another way to do it is describing what your algorithm is optimized to do and why so an example is you know if you have a, a hiring algorithm and it's optimized to hire the best candidate and i put that in air quotes You know, a company should be able to explain, you know, what variables go into a good candidate, right? And then if they test that system and they should be required to test that system and they find out that it's causing a disparate impact, right? So it's giving more adverse, no job decisions to uh, people of color or women. They should be able to explain why that impact is justifiable from a business perspective, right? It is actually, you know, not illegal to discriminate. Uh, in the united states um, against women or people of color it is illegal to do that without a legitimate business reason so i think companies should be able to to tell what they're optimizing for and they should be able to say how they've tried to approach a fair decision and they should be able to explain any bias in their their systems in a way that's going to work for the public uh, work for regulators and you know not get them sued essentially by uh, lawyers like me, right. Who are looking to make sure that these systems aren't causing discrimination and bias. And, you know, just, just to kind of take your example, you know, it may be that your job needs six foot two former football players, uh, in which case, you know, you can have discrimination against women, but you have to justify that. You have to explain in a, in a right in the right way, how your job, your, there's a business reason for any of this. So I think that's very important and that's not being done. So I think that's the bare minimum of what we need in these algorithmic systems. So it doesn't require companies to have any one way to yeah, be equitable, but they should have at least a legal explanation for the ways that they are being inequitable. And, and and I just, one, one quick example of how one company has approached this, right? Is, uh, Meta, you know, Facebook. They were sued several times because their ad targeting algorithms for housing, jobs, just like housing and job ads were going to white people at a much higher rate than they were going to people of color, right? And one of the systems they came up with was called their variance reduction system. So it's a very interesting way of how they can prove to regulators that their system is fair. And this is how they approached it: was when you run an ad campaign for a job, right? Software coders, for example, in San Francisco, Facebook Meta estimates the number of people who are likely eligible for that job across different categories, right? So the number of women eligible for that job, the number of um, Black people, the number of Latino people, and they create a distribution of how many people should percent percent wise see this ad, according to their their own internal metrics. So that's, that's a problem a little bit. And what happens is in the beginning of the campaign, they run the ad, right. And they just go to the most profitable. Yeah. They show the ad in the most profitable ways to Facebook and meta, right. And halfway through they'll check to make sure, okay, are we sending the ad to the demographics that we should be sending it to? And if it's not, they, they downrank the importance of profit and increase the importance of making sure that they're sending their ads out to yeah, the the distribution that they expected the ad should go to. So this is an interesting approach and I I've simplified it quite a bit. There's a lot more factors that go into it, but you know, that was one way they got around this type of criticism that, you know, they were being inequitable, being unfair, being discriminatory. So, you know, I think from a legal perspective, we don't need to require every company to do that, but you know, disclosing how they're approaching these sticky issues of equity can help the industry move forward and create some sort of standards and best practices that we can begin to adopt more widely.
0: Here's a broad question that I think uh, comes up, for me at least, when we're talking about these uh, issues of open concepts versus the kind of codification of them into law. How do you view the relationship between ethics and law when it comes to thinking about what needs to happen to make tech more uh, equitable?
1: Yeah, I I think... Yeah, ethics is very, very hard to put into an algorithm. And I think from a business perspective, they don't care too much about the ethics uh, as a whole, you know, you have shareholders and, you know, your, your job is their ethics and, you know, in, in the business logic is to create the most value for shareholders, right? So, I think what law has to do is, you know, create a floor. Right, and translate those ethical principles into some sort of intelligible guidelines that will constrain unethical behavior. Law is just definitely has to be more precise. And in many ways, people aren't gonna like that precision. So I think a good example of of this is, you know, the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, a federal government agency that, that looks into fairness in hiring they have this rule of thumb, it's not, it's not actually a legal rule, but the idea is you are likely to be causing discrimination and adverse impact if you're hiring someone, um, you know, some certain demographics at four-fifths the rate of others. So the idea is, you know, if you are hiring black people at, you know, four-fifths the rate, less than four-fifths the rate you're hiring white people, then you should look into your practices and make sure they're being fair, right? That's a rule of thumb that becomes kind of this legal guideline that algorithms use. So now essentially this ethical idea of like, we should make sure people have equal opportunity has been distilled and kind of perverted into this idea is, oh, I can discriminate, you know, 19% of the time. Right. And then I won't likely be caught uh, by the law. So, you know, there's, it's a, it's a tough tension. And it's never going to map perfectly because it's an open concept and laws generally require more specificity. But what I will say is, you know, people think laws and regulations are very specific, um, they can be in Europe. They are uh, oftentimes more specific, but here regulators use this beautiful word called reasonable, right? And, um, they, they. They said, you have to take reasonable actions to minimize risk of discrimination. And it's up to any company and their their legal department to decide what is reasonable. But oftentimes that is guided by ethics. So that's kind of a way for ethics to worm their way into regulations. And the imprecision of the word reasonable provides space for ethics.
0: When I think about the application of uh, laws and principles and the uh, mechanisms of our legal system that we can use uh, in order to kind of provide systems of accountability, I think of what I see as one of the challenges in in thinking about that intersection of tech production and, and law as it applies to accountability, because I think that on a certain basic level, our legal system still holds accountable the idea of the individual as somebody who the law can try and and hold accountable even in the context of something like a corporation a corporation is considered to be a, a person legally with specific people who can be charged and held accountable in that context as well. Legally, a corporation is considered to be and is formatted as a person. And so in technological production, I think this becomes particularly challenging because what we see is that the categories of accountability that might otherwise seem clear get obfuscated or eradicated when we're dealing with the harms caused by technical systems. I think, for example, of an algorithm that rejects me for a loan because, and here I'm pulling from the wonderful Kathy. O'Neill, who you mentioned earlier, and her book, Weapons of Math Destruction. In the context of that evaluation, the system got me, Deb Donig, confused with another Deb Donig in California who had bad credit history. Whereas in the past, we might have held an individual bank or an individual loan officer even accountable and ask them to explain their decision here, we have algorithms that, as you point out, are opaque. They're developed by coders and engineers, often at times at one company. They're authorized by managers at another company that buys the technology and employs it. And then the technology is deployed by agents who might be in a completely separate industry. So this process seems to remove agents and agency from the kinds of calculations that I think our legal system requires in order to hold somebody accountable. No one is responsible if the algorithm objectively provided the information, right? And again, I'm using that word objectively in air quotes because you already probed and poked holes at the idea that these algorithms are objective. But who are you going to blame in that situation? The individual coders who built the algorithms, the the service that buys or deploys it. And I'm wondering how do algorithms and the kinds of harms that they may create interact with classical and moral legal terms such as accountability? Who becomes accountable when algorithms produce bias or cause harms for communities? And are our legal systems set up to deal with that kind of distributed responsibility?
1: Yeah, I actually think, you know, you bring up a good point, right? And I may be cynical, but yes, it'll be very difficult to hold any individual responsible for the harm caused by Yeah, an algorithm that's discriminatory or biased, right? It's whole teams, there's compliance officers, you know, uh, the idea is they've distributed this responsibility so diffusely that, yeah, you won't be able to hold any one person accountable. And there's, there are, you know, regulatory ideas in place to begin to challenge this. You know, one idea is we have risk assessments that are signed off by C-suite executives. So you've done all of these things, you've mitigated all of these harms, And, you know, under penalty of perjury, an executive has to sign that, and then that creates space within an organization to, for people who want to do the right thing, who want to push against maybe the most profitable option to, to have the ability to say, no, wait, we should re rethink this algorithm. We should rethink how we optimize it because, you know, this isn't the least discriminatory way we can, we can develop this system. Um, so, you know, that that's just one note there, but I think overall. Yeah, it is gonna be difficult to hold any one person accountable. You can hold the company as a whole accountable. We, I think we have to see this though as an opportunity. When you have an individual loan officer, for example, that discriminates, it's very difficult to get the truth. They can lie, they can say, no, I, I, don't, have a, I don't discriminate against X, Y, or Z, and these, all of these decisions were made uh, based off of you know, not their race, not their gender. Right. Whereas with an algorithm, you know, you do have the opportunity if certain things are documented within these systems to, to have an un, not unbiased, but, you know, kind of a, a straight look, you know, not varnished by lies around what were the variables that this company was optimizing for, right? What were the checks that they had in place? What data were they using to train it? So in, in many ways, an algorithm is more honest than a human. So that is an opportunity for us to actually determine, was a company being reasonable? Were they actually fulfilling all their obligations to mitigate any disparate impact or bias they had in their systems? And I think we need to change our legal system and our regulations, um, so the courts and and the laws, to, to better kind of achieve the promise of greater transparency that algorithms have. And that can help us. At least, maybe it won't help us find you know any one person accountable, but it'll be a lot easier to find companies liable for the harms they cause, right? And it, right now, it's very difficult to prove that a bank is being discriminated. But if we have the right disclosures, it, it actually becomes very easy because you can just test this data. You can uh, you can look at what they were optimizing for. You can compare it to what other companies do, and then that makes it a lot easier to bring a lawsuit. So. I think some reform and how, you know, what companies have to document and provide will really help make these anti-discrimination lawsuits easier. Uh, and that allows us to hold these companies much more accountable. And I think I have, I have an anecdote about this is, you know, when I, I ran a bill requiring companies to do risk assessments, you know, several years ago, I was on a call with a bunch of industry groups. And one of the things I explained what the bill would do I was like, "Hey, you have to measure bias in your system and someone um someone on the call was like, "I think just speaking, you know her thoughts out loud I was like, "But but wait, if we measure it, then we're liable for it." And I was like, "Exactly, you know, so I think that's the types of things that have to change. You have to actually measure the bias and then you can take whatever steps you think are appropriate or reasonable to mitigate that bias, and that's an a big difference in terms of what you can do with algorithms versus humans making decisions. So there is some way to achieve kind of this original promise of objective, more fair systems. We just aren't doing it here in the US.
0: This is interesting to me. I want to pull out something from what you said, because you've mentioned transparency a number of different times throughout this conversation as a mechanism for both accountability and for building um, fairer systems, as well as for scrutiny. And I'm really curious about this trend toward transparency. And I'm also curious from you To hear a little bit why you think transparency is such an important value and also why it's um, particularly important in the context of technological production. After all, we always, I think, also recognize that companies have a right to internal privacy for some of their practices or protecting trade secrets or things like that. And so I'm wondering, what is it about this particular moment, maybe, or this particular industry that requires maybe an advanced level of scrutiny uh, on the level of transparency that maybe other industries have not historically uh, required or even that in, in our contemporary American legal system, we actually uh, protect and recognize as sovereign. What is it that um, you think right now really requires transparency in a way that maybe we haven't seen before or that is unique to the tech industry?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. And, you know, I would like more than transparency, right? But I think transparency is the first step that we need to build the political will for more prescriptive action, right? So if you don't know how systems are being made, you don't know what the processes are in place for companies to mitigate bias, if they're even doing it at all, you don't know what systems are being used by your government to make decisions, then it gets very difficult to build kind of the groundswell of political support that will allow for more stringent regulations, right? Around like what, yeah, algorithms can or cannot do, or to require that a human be involved with certain types of decisions or to ban biometric surveillance in public places, right? So I think transparency is very key for the that political reason, right? And also as an internal mechanism, right? If you think someone's going to be checking your work, someone's going to be looking over your shoulder around like, oh, how did you do that within a company? And you know it's going to be a regulator, someone or academia or someone who has different set of interests than you, right, maybe protecting consumers versus maximizing profits, then you're more likely to moderate your behavior. And I think it was a a Brandeis quote, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant. You know, I think that's why we always want transparency. We want more sunlight on these processes. So it, it forces companies through this kind of process to be a little bit more introspective about how they are developing these systems. So, yeah, I think, you know, there's multiple reasons why I need transparency. And without it, I don't think we can get legislators to support stronger bills, right? And, And I think we are already, you know, 10 years behind the ball on these types of legal regulations. You know, the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation from Europe came out, you know, I think a decade ago more than a decade ago, and they've required data protection impact assessments of companies, right? I think it's interesting that those impact assessments aren't public, they're internal, but companies do a lot, lot, they process data a lot less, they have a lot less information in in, uh, the EU. They have restrictions on what types of monitoring and public biometric surveillance can happen over there. So, you know, I think the reason why in the US we don't have that is we didn't have all these news stories that created the political will to have more stringent regulations until recently. And that was because we had reporters that had the technical ability to come in and analyze, oh wait, these lending algorithms are discriminatory. Oh wait, this government algorithm for identifying tax sheets, unemployment fraud were wildly inaccurate. So that created the groundswell of public support or stronger bills, stronger legislation and regulations. And that's what transparency can get
0: you. I mean, I guess I'm a little bit more cynical, or maybe I've just lived in Silicon Valley for too long here. Because one response that a tech leader might give you, or CEO in Silicon Valley might give you, is that tech companies are operating less in places like Europe than they are in the United States precisely because the regulations are more stringent. They would frame it, I think, as the EU stifles innovation and it stifles commercial opportunity and uh, opportunity to generate capital, which increasingly aggregates in in places like Silicon Valley, which has intellectual property laws that are much more lax and regulatory practices that are much more lax. And so the technological uh, innovator or CEO or entrepreneur might say that the EU is now losing out because uh, technological innovation is more concentrated in these areas precisely because there is less regulation. I'm wondering, again, I I say this is a little bit of a cynic um, because I think that the the kind of bright star of the EU would be seen by many technological innovators as kind of a a death knell for innovation and for commerce in the European Union. And so I, I, I think that that would be the framing. Is what I meant to say. And so I, I'm wondering for you how you respond to that kind of argument and what kinds of transparency bills might you propose or what kind of legislation do you think might spur innovation or allow for that kind of innovation or maybe even dispute that argument while at the same time imposing reasonable practices?
1: Yeah, no, I think you're right. You know, we. We have a lot more tech companies than the EU and our approach. And yeah, the EU approach is very much described as stifling innovation. And I just don't think we'll ever get to the point where politicians here in the United States and California are gonna allow for the same level of regulation as the EU. So I'm coming from a different perspective of, you know, we have, it's all been, it's been all about innovation, nothing about consumers right? In the United States for so long. So transparency will give consumers a little bit more of a chance to push back. So I, I guess we're coming, I'm also quite cynical about this too, but I'm coming at it from like, well, we have, I've tried to run a bill asking for what I didn't think was very much. And that was, you know, the essentially, we got the word that it would get vetoed if, if it made it all the way to the governor's desk, because there was worries about how this would affect affect California businesses. So I think it's, it is more like just to give consumers some ammunition in this battle to wrest some power away from businesses to collect and use our data for algorithms and profiling in any, any kind of way they would like. And, you know, in, in terms of, you know, what, what I've talked about, you know, during, you know, this, this podcast really isn't prohibiting companies from doing anything. Right. It is just telling us just tell us what you're doing you can say we don't do any testing for bias right that would be a way that you 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 answer your risk assessment will your legal and your like compliance department at your company like that answer probably not but that is allowed you can just you just have to say we have done no testing for bias we optimize our algorithms to make the most amount of profit we've done nothing to mitigate the harms but we don't think that that was necessary. You could complete your risk assessment, transparency obligation that way, that likely, you know, in, in, you know, a regulator would look at that and be like, well, are you sure, you know, your legal compliance department would say, are you sure? So this just creates internal checks on like, oh, wait, actually, maybe we should have some of these tests. Maybe we should do some sort of risk mitigation. So this is a very pro innovation set of policies. I wouldn't say it's pro-innovation, it's just not stifling innovation. You can just say none of this matters to us as a company and this is what we're going to put down on a piece of paper. But this does give a nudge for corporations who are worried about the public impact of that or are worried that a regulator will come in or during discovery in some sort of lawsuit when something goes wrong that they documented that they did nothing to prevent any of these biases in their system. Uh, or they haven't even looked because that wasn't, you know, you're likely to be found, oh, that wasn't a reasonable thing to do. I I think the 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 policies that I've proposed here around, you know, telling us what you think a fair decision is, telling us what you've done to mitigate, identify and mitigate risks within your systems, doesn't stifle innovation. It does cost money, right, for companies to do this, but it it is kind of an iterative process. As we get more and more information about how companies are approaching this, we get to see what the best practices are, and then regulators can come in and say, hey, you know, you're likely not to get any action taken from you if you're at least doing X, Y, or Z. But right now, regulators have so little idea of how companies are approaching risk that we need this transparency to build standards, uh, to get an updated four-fifths rule across different sectors and industries on you know how to measure bias how to identify it how to mitigate it
0: You mentioned a couple of proposed policies and alluded to the fact that so far the proposals have not been successfully adopted and and ratified in any way. And I think that that fits into a trend that I see. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of the Algorithmic Accountability Act of 2022, which U.S. Senators uh, Ron Wyden and Cory Booker and Representative Yvette Clark proposed, which, if enacted, would bring new transparency and oversight of software algorithms and other automated systems that are used to make Critical decisions about nearly every aspect of Americans' lives. The 2022 bill was not the first time an attempt to create such structures mandating transparency has come up. Similar legislation was introduced in 2019, proposed several times before that. The 2022 bill failed as of January of this year, that is to say, 2023, as has almost all of the proposed legislation before that, to my knowledge, actually all of the proposed legislation before that. Do you expect to see such legislation ultimately enacted in the future?
1: Yeah, I do think uh, we will get legislation in the future. And that's because of all the state level legislation that we're having. Right? Utah has a set of rules. Colorado has a set of rules. California has a set of rules. Virginia, I think there's over ten states that have data privacy bills that impact algorithms, right? Uh, some require risk assessments. Some don't. Some require you know California has an agency that looks over these these risk assessments. and it creates different obligations for companies all across the United States. If they go at a state-by-state state level, and that creates pressure to unify around federal legislation, and you know, actually, the Algorithmic Accountability Act of 2019 was what my bill was partially based off of. I use some of those definitions. You know, any good lawyer will will won't reinvent the wheel. And so, yeah, we, you know, we're getting some of these bills passed at the state level, and businesses are worried that it's going to cost them too much to comply with these state by state rules so they want just a set of federal rules. So I think that will drive pressure to get a unified federal legislation on on these topics, right? But the question is how good will that bill be? Will it undercut other states? You know, outside of my job at the Greenlining Institute, I'm on the board of the California Privacy Protection Agency. We actually opposed a, uh, a bill, a federal algorithmic accountability bill, uh, because that bill would preempt California, right? It would take away California's ability to put in more strict rules uh, for businesses that are developing algorithms. And it was a difficult choice to make, right? But, you know, our idea was that, you know, any federal rule should be a floor for regulations on this topic, but, uh, you know, the industry definitely doesn't want that, right? So, because that creates the same problems that they're dealing with now, or they'll just have to comply with California's rules or the most strict rules. And I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing, but to answer your question, yes, I think we're going to see legislation in the future. I think that transparency will help in that project. Being able to see where how pervasive these systems are and whether or not they are working will help get more voter support for it. And I, I think the EU... Developing their AI Act will also be kind of an impetus for legislators to say, well, you can do it in Europe, you know, you can do a version of it in the United States too. So there are, I think, factors coming that are making it more likely that we'll get some comprehensive legislation on this.
0: Okay, good. I'm glad you mentioned the EU AI Regulation Act. I've been hopping up and down on on one foot waiting to ask you uh, about that. Because I think, uh, again, coming from a little bit of the cynical point of view that I have, one of the arguments that I might make in favor of an optimistic view of what might transpire over the next couple of years is that most of the companies that we're talking about here um, are companies that intend to, if not uh, already, act in multinational contexts, where they are multinational corporations, where they have to create products and processes that can be exported and that can be subject to the governance by uh, other countries and the other spaces where they hope to or are already operating. And under the constraints of something like the EU AI Regulation uh, Act, those companies might be circumscribed by just in terms of a kind of practical business-oriented model of economics um, to adjust their practices and their processes and their products uh, in ways that can serve this kind of multinational context. Do you share this kind of optimism? Do you think that the EU may not just be setting practices and protocols that might inform uh, United States legislation, but might actually provide a kind of business model circumscription or or formation and might this be an opportunity for uh, the kinds of reforms that you're talking about from from the arena of economics and from the arena of business practices rather than legal practices.
1: Yeah, I think I I do think so. I agree with you there. I think the EU is a big market, right? And some of the AI act regulations are the things that I've been asking for, right? You have to if your, you know, algorithm or your AI system is within certain categories, you're making critical decisions. Then you have to do what we like state of the art testing to do this risk analysis and mitigate those risks in your system before you deploy those. So I, I do think, you know, companies that are operating across borders will find it just cheaper to, to create one product, you know, one product and, and deploy the same product in the United States. So yeah, I, I am quite optimistic about that and it wasn't, it wasn't guaranteed that the AI Act would pass, right? And I think that was the rise of, you know, chat GPT and these large language models and kind of the media commotion, right? Also had them add some sections into the EU Act bill to, to cover those types of systems and gave it the, you know, the political support necessary for that to pass. And, you know, that's that's kind of what i am trying to get out around this transparency idea is it's like these stories, these news stories it's it's bad news, drives policy so often, right, and that's kind of why we need the the transparency to yeah get this political pressure to pass legislation but yeah to you know to back to answer your question yes i I am cautiously optimistic the AI act isn't perfect, but it does put in. Kind of very forward thinking regulations, and it requires testing uh, of these systems according to the state of the art, what that state of the art is, what those testing, what those audits look like, actually nobody knows. so that is kind of one of the one of the issues is we're going to develop a whole new industry of AI audits and testing, and you know that'll kind of be a, a interesting thing to see rise because of the AI act and forthcoming legislation here in the United States.
0: In a report that you wrote uh, addressing algorithmic bias, you identify three target areas that you see as critical for addressing automated decision-making, and they are, first, algorithmic transparency and accountability, which we've talked about, race-aware algorithms uh, is the second one, and the third one is algorithmic greenlining. We've spent a lot of time talking about the first of the three, that is to say, algorithmic transparency and accountability. So let's talk about the second, race-aware algorithms. What does a race aware algorithm look like and how would a technologist embark on the process of creating race aware algorithms?
1: Most systems these days, algorithmic systems that make decisions about you are race blind. They don't know your gender, your, yeah, your race, your age. And that is because there are civil rights protections against using this type of data in decision-making so companies would rather just not have it to to minimize the risk of a lawsuit that they are making a decision based on your race but when it comes to you know that kind of work race being race blind worked when it comes to humans so if humans are looking at resumes and they don't know your name they don't know your race they're less likely to be discriminatory uh, if that person was biased but the way algorithms work is it doesn't matter if they don't know your race because they can learn those patterns through all of these different proxies. You know what high school you went to, what zip code that do you live in? Yeah, what's your last name? What uh, so there's so much data that they can use and, and identify with relatively high accuracy what your race, gender, age is. So being blind to these attributes doesn't really change much in terms of preventing discrimination in um, these systems. So a race aware algorithm is one that. There's two ways to look at it. One that is just knows what your, your race is, and that allows you to check your work, right? You can, you can test for bias because you have race data attached to all of your decisions, right? You don't have to use it in making the decision, but you at least know that, okay, my system is discriminating against black people. Right. And that's that awareness of race helps you minimize bias. The other one is actually using it in your decision-making system. And this is controversial uh, to say the least, and much less likely after, you know, the recent Supreme court decision on affirmative action. But I think the, the idea behind it is that correlations and, uh, between certain factors are different across race, right? So uh, the, there was a study done talking about how, you know, high school GPA how many hours a week you volunteered and your SAT scores, the correlation between those three factors and your predicted college GPA are very different between white and black students. Right. And, you know, it makes some sense is like, if you grew up wealthier in a wealthier, whiter neighborhood, maybe you had more time for SAT classes. Uh, You had more time to do volunteering, right? Uh, versus if you were in a, you know, you're a person of color living in a formerly red line neighborhood, you had to work a second job to support your family. Then, you know, you may be able to get just as good grades in college, but your SAT score suffered and you had less time to volunteer or your GPA suffered. So the idea is if we could create separate algorithms that were more accurately representative, of the relationship between, you know, these input variables and the output predicted value. Then you could actually make more accurate decisions that were actually, uh, you weren't lowering the accuracy of your algorithm because you were allowing it to be differentiated based on group though. So that was an idea that we, you know, it was kind of this idea of an affirmative action algorithm, some sort of preference that could counteract the fact that, you know, these relationships aren't the same between groups for obvious reasons, but I think. That's going to be a little hard to do legally um i think any compliance department's going to be like no that's not let's not go there uh, but you can get generally this race aware at least in terms of testing for bias minimizing bias uh, i think that is more on legally solid ground
0: okay so that is race aware algorithms that's the second of the two points that you see as critical for addressing automated decision-making. What about the third, algorithmic greenlining? How would you describe algorithmic greenlining?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, redlining was, you know, the systemic disinvestment of resources and opportunities in communities of color, right? So algorithmic greenlining is the opposite, right? Is how do we target resources, investment into communities of color in a way that redresses historical harms and discrimination and redlining? And you know, with, with what I said about, all, you know, affirmative action algorithms and the Supreme Court, you can't really be very explicit about that. But what California already has an algorithm that does essentially the same thing. It does algorithmic greenlining, and that's the CalEnviroScreen tool. And that what that does is it looks at a lot of different factors, right? Poverty, exposure to pollution, asthma rates, socioeconomic factors, and environmental factors. And it identifies disadvantaged communities, right? And those disadvantaged communities are majority people of color, and they are like majority formerly red communities. And with that, you know, disadvantaged community status, we actually funnel billions of dollars in climate funds to those communities to do climate resilience work, to build affordable housing, to put in electric chargers. So this is creating investment in these communities using our greenhouse gas reduction fund. So that's like a great example of algorithmic greenlining. You don't have to use race as a factor, right? But you can use all the proxies for race that are used to discriminate against people today, actually to target investment. So it's kind of like taking the tools for discrimination and flipping it on its head and using that to build equity. And uh, the federal government has followed this practice in their justice 40 initiative there is, you know, a lot of funding available federally for climate work, uh, infrastructure work, and they're creating their own version of disadvantaged communities using these factors that are proxies for uh, essentially very close proxies for race. So, um, I know it's pretty exciting uh, and, and I like that it's happening in the climate space first because so many times redline communities were exposed to pollution and bad bad air And I think it's nice that, you know, who's who's going to be seen first, you know, who's going to be prioritized in all of this, you know, green green funding will be those same communities.
0: I wanted to ask a question about the kind of conditions that we're in currently. Um, In many of the conversations that I'm having with folks right now, both on the air and off the air, there seems to be a kind of aura or an environment of apocalyptic thinking. We're heading into a very consequential election, one that many people are very worried about. The risks of climate change are rising. Uh, We're seeing the overturning of democratic norms in a number of different spaces uh, that have historically mobilized democratic norms over the past century or so. And of course, uh, we're seeing um, rising levels of violence in in many places of the world, including our own. Uh, Extremism emerging, the uh, ADL's online hate and harassment index indicated that many people are concerned and indeed fearful about the amount of hate and harassment that they're experiencing online. All of this is to say that there's a lot of people who are up late at night uh, worried about a lot of things. What keeps you up at night about uh, the current conditions of our, our technological production broadly, and and AI driven by algorithms um, specifically? What are you most concerned about in this moment?
1: Yeah, I, I'll I'll say two things keep me up. You know, to your point about extremism, and I, I I do very much think a lot of the polarization and hate is driven by social media algorithms. Right, it's not something that I personally work on. Greenlining personally works on, but it does keep me personally up at night. And the thought that really, you know, it's not easy to solve. We have the First Amendment that makes any sort of attempt to moderate that very politically and legally difficult, right? So I think we it's more of how do we educate people to have better practices and hygiene when it comes to the recommendation algorithms? How do we get people to more critically think about disinformation so that is a you know generation level task in terms of education. Uh, there's not there's no easy fix to that, considering you know our, our First Amendment protections on speech. And then the, the other is you know the rise of yeah, machine learning algorithms, these large language models like ChatGPT. You know, so much of what I talked about is premised on the ability for us to peek under the hood. For companies to spend some resources to be able to explain how they came to a decision, what are the criteria for their, you know, a good candidate or a good loan rate or who gets what type of health care. And as we switch deeper and deeper into this machine learning techniques, it's becoming more and more impossible to explain. And can we get any transparency and accountability? When even the people developing these systems have no idea why, and I am told that it is impossible to explain why. Uh, so I hope that is you know just a lack of imagination and technical resources dedicated to that problem. But um, I am worried that we actually are moving away from an explainable system, and that's getting us into this Kafka esque situation where these systems that the person who developed it has no idea, we have no idea. But it is impacting our ability to get access to opportunities and no one can tell you why and that would be a terrible future that i hope we avoid
0: so my next question i'll just kind of prelude it with a little bit of an of an anecdote there's a very famous story about uh two men and the one man says to the other man come here i want to show you something takes the other man uh, around to the back of his house and there's a barn there and i takes a man into the barn and the second man holds his nose. He says, oh my God, I can't even believe the smell in here. What is that? It's, I'll use a polite word here because I want to get a Apple rating that doesn't require me to mark this as an explicit conversation or anything or an r conversation. He holds his nose. He says, it's horse poop in here. And he says, I can't stand the smell. And the other man says, yeah, but what I wanted to show you is my pony. Right? So one man walks into the barn it's, can't stand the smell and he is overcome by the smell of poop. The other one is overjoyed by the sight of a pony. <laughs> so I want to ask you what in this barn of horse poop, where you see the pony? What's the pony?
1: Yeah, I, I think the pony is, you know, I, I think I mentioned it with you know the, the original promise of algorithms over over humans making decisions, right is that algorithms can be much more honest. They can be much more objective. It's just that there's no reason to make them that way right now. And I, I still believe we can achieve that original promise. We just need, you know, companies that are designing these systems to have someone looking over their shoulder, saying, like, oh, are you doing the right thing? Uh we want to give space for, you know, the ethical people within these companies, the developers that are marginalized to just ship a product, to have some space to be like, no, let's make sure. That what we ship is fair. It's going to stand up to scrutiny. So I do think that promise is achievable. Um, and one, one example of this is that, um, you know, when it comes to loans, right. Algorithms are discriminatory when it gives, comes to giving loans, but they are much less discriminatory than humans. So, um, that gives me hope, right. That like it's all doom and gloom. Right. But compared to, you know, how human biases work. We can get rid of algorithmic bias. And I think it is much more difficult to get rid of human bias. So that's the pony for me.
0: I think we have time for one last question. A lot of students listen to this podcast, and I teach undergraduates at Cal Poly and graduate students in the Data Science Program at Berkeley. And these are two groups of people who are positioned to be the next generation of leaders and creators and technological producers. What would you want them to know or understand or be aware of as they move forward in their careers working to build the products that you will spend your days thinking about? I think one thing
1: in coming into this industry is I I, I started the you know, algorithmic equity program at the Greenlining Institute, and I had no idea what I was doing. Um, You know, I was very much living with imposter syndrome. I was reading everything I could. And I think I realized, you know, a couple years into it is that, you know, this is a new topic. Nobody really knows what they're doing. Right. And it's, it's a scary thought, right, is that I'm talking to people who have PhDs and their their solutions. Are just as out there as mine, or we we totally agree on these solutions. So I, I do think coming into such a technical field, you think that oh no, right? Like this is impossible. Like I don't know anything. But uh, it's new enough. Everyone's figuring it out as they go, right? I think as long as you have a curious mind and you're you know continuing to read and think through all of your yeah your thoughts and your ideas. Then you know there's no reason to be scared off uh, of being in this field, and it is such an exciting place to be because the cutting edge is, yeah, it, it's it's the it's the place to be. So uh, I encourage folks who are you know teetering on is like, do I want to pursue this as a career or as an interest, uh, not to be scared off by the seeming technical complexity of these issues, because there's a place for you. You know, I'm a lawyer. I didn't wasn't trained to be a coder or anything like that, but you know, I found my niche here and you know you can't do.
0: Thank you very much Vincent. No problem.